Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group. Today, we have myself, Russell Tregonis, and... Sean Murray. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. Keeping it nice and close here, and that's going to be really the theme of our talk here, staying close, keeping those blood vessels nice and close, because we're going to be talking about vasopressors. But first, a quick advertisement for one of our sponsors. So today's episode is brought to you by IV Access. IV Access. There are three main types of IV Access. Great IV access and people that don't need it, terrible access and those who do, and blown access and patients lying in the CT scanner. IV access. That's beautiful. So let's go ahead and get on with the show. Like I said, this week we're going to be discussing vasopressors and trying to pay more attention to ED vasopressors. I love vasopressors. I want to be a critical care, or I guess I am going to be a critical care fellow one day, and this is one of the things that I'm most passionate about. But looking at their role in the emergency department is something we always get curious from when we're doing off-service rotations, things like that. But let's talk about how we actually can use them in the ED. So, Sean, patient's coming in hypotensive. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, after a careful history and physical exam, uh, probably I'm going to end up giving them some fluids. Cool, cool. Anything else? Let's say they stay hypotensive. Yeah, it sounds like they might need some pressors. Okay, so we've got a patient unresponsive to the initial fluid, still staying hypotensive. What are you going to do, Sean? I'm going to start some norepinephrine, probably, and call the ICU, hashtag dispo. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's what we are supposed to do for these patients. These are patients who are hypotensive, and we're just trying to get them. So what's our goal with these pressers, Sean? Our goal is to keep their MAP above 65. And why is that? We know that if patients remain hypotensive and we define that as being less than a MAP of 65, they do poorly. We know that end organ damage is occurring when they're hypotensive. So that's got to be our chief goal. Exactly. So what we're going to do with these patients is we are hanging norepinephrine if we think they need pressors. And we think those patients need pressors if their MAPs are below 65. We're going to start norepi and we're going to titrate it until we get to 65. And then like you said, it's not really our job from there. We either transfer them to another facility if they need to, or we admit them up to RICU. You've done your job, but your job does involve starting those vasopressors if a patient needs it with math less than 65. And norepi, honestly, is the best thing for the job. So all in all, thanks for joining us for the podcast today, guys. That's really all you have to say. All that we need to know for vasopressors is norepinephrine. Is that right, Sean? Well, hang on. Russell, I'm looking for a little bit more style points here. I, you know, I know that norepinephrine is the number one easiest thing to grab. And uh, as we'll talk about the data shows, it's probably the best thing to grab. But, you know, I want to look a little bit smarter. Well, let's get smart here, Sean. And let's help all of our listeners get a little bit smarter here. So let's start off with just vasopressors in general. Funny thing is, we didn't really come up with this. The body's been doing this for a while. And the body does it in a couple of different ways with its own physiologic milieu. With that physiologic milieu, we use a couple of different substances. So what's, what are the body's endogenous vasopressors, Sean? Uh, my milieu includes epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Okay. So with those, are those all kind of underneath one class? Yeah, those are all catecholamines. Exactly. Yeah. So those are all catecholamines. So with those catecholamines, what receptors are those catecholamines going to bind to? So the catecholamines are going to bind to your alpha and beta receptors, and then dopamine's a little bit strange, has its own receptor as well. Okay, so those catecholamines, just like Sean said, epi, norepi, dopamine, and then if we're going on a little bit past that, we'll have the synthetic dobutamine and phenylephrine. 
And all those are going to bind to our alpha and beta receptors in some ratio. And we'll kind of go through that. Any other endogenous classes of vasopressors, Sean? Yeah, our body's got a couple of other things that it likes to dabble with to regulate our blood pressure. Uh, there's vasopressin or ADH. And those will bind to your V1, V2, or V3 receptors. And? There's also angiotensin II. If you think back all the way back to your first year of medical school learning the uh, RAS system, this comes back into play here. And um, emerging data that says angiotensin II might be a helpful presser in some scenarios. Yeah, it, it very well might be. And the big thing here is that just we have multiple different types of endogenous vasopressors. Like Sean said, we have the catecholamines, we have vasopressin or ADH, and then we have angiotensin II. And we're going to talk about how some of our pressors work along those pathways. So let's start off with the biggest group. And this is the group we were talking about from the beginning, the catecholamines. Sean, how do you like to kind of differentiate your catecholamines? Do you look at the receptors that they bind to? Yeah, I think that that's a great way to kind of organize it in your brain. Uh, it can get a little bit complicated if you think about it in a chart or one of these graphs with the triangles and moving along the horizontal axis, more alpha, more beta. None of that makes sense to me. So I kind of have to break it down into... All this receptor, all this receptor, or a mix of both. Okay, so like we said, the receptors we're dealing with are our alphas and our betas, and we're not going to go into too much detail about that, but just remember, alpha is going to give you your vasoconstriction, both venous and arterial, and your beta is going to give you the additional chronotropy and ionotropy. Then you also have that kind of beta-2 element of the vasodilation and bronchodilation, but let's focus on the alpha-1 and beta-1. So Sean, how do you divide up our catecholamines according to their receptors? But like I said, I like to think about it at which ones are going to attack my alpha receptors and which ones are going to attack my beta receptors. So I guess I do think about it as a graph just without the picture. I start all the way with my alpha receptors, and that's going to be phenylephrine. That's a drug that exerts its action through the alpha receptor. On the other end of the spectrum, we have dobutamine. Dobutamine is going to be all beta. So those are our two ends. So what fills up that middle area? So norepinephrine, the drug that we're going to talk about the most, is more alpha than beta, but it does act on both receptors. And then on the other side, we have epi, which is maybe a little bit more beta than alpha, so giving us more beta action than alpha. So reviewing once again, phenylephrine, all alpha. Dobutamine, all beta. In the middle, you have norepi, which will be more alpha than beta, and then epi, which will be more beta than alpha. Finally, we'll get to talking about dopamine too, but that's just kind of a weird one. We'll talk more about that when we get there. So let's lead it off, Sean. Like you said, we're hanging norepinephrine for most of our patients that's coming in. So walk me through, how does norepi work? So like we talked about, norepinephrine is going to exert its action through both alpha and beta agonism. Through the alpha agonism, this is going to be your peripheral vasoconstriction. And that's, I think, primarily what we think about when we're reaching for norepinephrine in our septic patients or patients that have vasodilatory shock, is that we're trying to combat that by squeezing back down both on venoconstriction and arterial constriction. So norepinephrine also acts on the beta receptor, and that's going to lead to greater ionotropy and a little bit of chronotropy as well. So you get some, some better squeeze. Okay, so we've talked about the mechanism. If we go into the indication for norepinephrine, I mean, this is easy. Norepinephrine is going to be indicated in shock. As long as this patient isn't hemorrhagic or hypovolemic, they're not trauma patients that have bled out, GI bleeders bleeding out, or just a patient that's had copious vomiting and diarrhea to the point that they're so low on fluids, any other type of shock vasogenic, uh, cardiogenic, any of those other types, norepinephrine is the best. And this has been shown in many studies from the SOAP2 trial that showed it as having less complications in the norepi arm than the dopamine arm. We've also seen a recent article by Levy et al. in the Journal of American Cardiology where they look at norepi as having fewer adverse events than epi for post-AMI cardiogenic shock. 
We've also looked at it as a role in its neurogenic shock with your cervical cord injuries and vasopressors with both alpha and beta seem to work better. And then the VAST trial where they compared using more norepi versus norepi plus vasopressin and just seeing that patients more norepi actually works just as well as norepi with vasopressin in addition. So in conclusion, any type of shock, norepinephrine should be your first line vasopressor. And there hasn't been any evidence to show that any other vasopressor is any better than it. It's always nice when the universe takes care of me and makes that decision easy. You know, that's, and we're here to do that for you, Sean. We need to probably make more decisions for you because the more you make independently, the more trouble our patients seem to run into. But we, we wanted to make sure you understood this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. But I also don't have the capacity to make my own decisions. So. <laughs> so legal indications are neither here nor there. But Sean, talk to me about your dosage of norepinephrine. So norepinephrine actually does have a weight-based dose that we don't talk about. It's 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute. That's a lot of math from my tiny brain. So I think about starting between four and seven micrograms per minute. For me, I just pick a number and start there. I know I'm going to be titrating this drug, so I start at seven. And exactly, that should be the best way we think about this. These medications don't really have a appropriate weight-based dose. You are dosing these according to their effect. So if you put in a small dose initially and it doesn't work, you titrate it up. If you put in too big of a dose and you overshoot your maps, you titrate down. So it's good just having an initial number, four or seven, wherever you want to go, and then saying we're going to titrate that to our MAPS of 65. So that was a lot of talk about norepinephrine. Sean, give us a quick summary of exactly what we talked about with this med again. All right, norepinephrine. It works through both alpha and beta agonism. You can use it for any kind of shock. Start it at four to seven micrograms per minute and titrate to effect. And again, that effect is a MAP greater than 65. Like any drug, it's got drawbacks and it's got advantages. The advantages to this drug is that it's literally the best for any kind of shock. That makes it easy. It's been proven to be safe when given peripherally, especially down in the emergency department in the acute setting where it's just going to be for a little while until you can get better access. The bad side is because you're giving beta agonism as well, it is pro-arrhythmogenic. So yeah, I mean, any of these medications that have some beta action, regardless of how much it is, they're going to have an increased risk of having tachydysrhythmias, things like that. So just something to keep in mind. But in the grand scheme of things, norepinephrine is going to be our go-to. Let's go on to our next vasopressor then. So this time we're going to be talking about epinephrine. Yeah, thank goodness, because I've exhausted all of my knowledge about vasopressors. So I'm hoping for some help from you here. Okay. Well, with epinephrine, like we said, this is going to be one of our mixed bag vasopressors. So we're going to get both beta and alpha agonism. Now, the way I simplify it is I think norepi is primarily alpha. On the other end, epi is going to be primarily beta. So here we get good ionotrophic and chronotrophic effects. Now, with this beta agonism, we run into a couple of other things. Beta actually increases your lactate production, which, come to think of it, is a good thing. This lactate actually serves as a metabolite for the heart, but it might make us a little bit more difficult to track our lactates as we're resuscitating this patient. It also does increase your myocardial demand. Just if you're targeting that beta more, your heart's going to work harder. It's going to need more oxygen. So if you have an ischemic heart, this might make it work a little bit harder, but still you're getting that better squeeze, you're getting that faster squeeze. It also does have the alpha agonism as well, likely kind of similar to your norepinephrine. But once again, we're trying to make things simple. Think norepi, more alpha, epi, more beta. So with that in mind, if we're using this primarily for its beta actions, what's going to be your indication for it? I think about reaching for epinephrine in a patient that's hypotensive, and I think it may be related to a bad heart. So I think about this in a patient that's got bradycardia and hypotension or hypotension with poor contractility when I put my point-of-care ultrasound down on the patient's chest. Yeah, those are probably the best indications for it. Significant bradycardia with hypotension as well as hypotension with poor contractility. 
Now, as you're probably asking right now, we just did mention that norepi has been proven to have less adverse effects than epi in cardiogenic shock. But if we try and think with our physiologic minds here, maybe you can use a little combination of them. Maybe start a little basal dose of epi, kind of seeing if we can get a little bit better heart function, so maybe up to 5 micrograms per minute. And checking with our ultrasound, our heart's now squeezing a little bit better. Now we can use the norepi as our primary driver of our blood pressure. So titrate your norepi to try and get the blood pressure you want while using just a little bit of epi to help out your heart. So with that in mind, what we normally want to start our dosage at for these patients is anywhere from 3 to 5 micrograms per minute. Now, once again, like Sean said, this can be weight-based, but we care about it's either working or it's not working. So if we're using this as our primary presser, which we probably shouldn't be, you're going to titrate that to the effect that you want, to a map greater than 65. If you're using this with norepi, you want to start at 3 to 5 micrograms per minute and titrate more towards trying to hit the level of contractility you're looking for. We've talked about this in previous podcasts as well, but epinephrine can also be given as a push-dose presser. I don't want to belabor that too much here because we've already done an episode on this, so I'll refer you on to that episode, but that's another advantage that this drug has. Okay, so in summary, epinephrine. Our mechanism is going to be primarily beta agonism, but we also get some alpha actions too. Our main indications are going to be when you have hypotension with a bad heart, either poor cardiac function or bradycardia. Our dose, we're going to start at 3 to 5 micrograms per minute and titrate as we need, or if we're doing push dose, maybe we're giving 10 to 20 micrograms with each dose every two minutes. Now, in reviewing it, like any other med, there are good and bad effects. The good effects here, we might give a dying heart a better chance. Maybe the evidence isn't great for it. It can also be drawn up as a push-dose presser, which gives us that instant action. The problems now are lactate's not as reliable for monitoring perfusion. We're going to have increased arrhythmias, especially compared to norepinephrine because of that additional beta action. And we also just have limited evidence that it really is superior to norepi in most situations. So while it's not going to be as good as norepi, our go-to presser for everything, this might give us that little bit of extra help to the heart when you need it. So let's move on to our next med. Then. So our next one that we're going to talk about is going to be one of our synthetic catecholamines, and that's phenylephrine. So why do we make a fancy drug like phenylephrine, Sean? Well, we looked at epinephrine, and we looked at norepinephrine, and we said, how are these drugs working? And what if I wanted to isolate one of those effects? You know, we've talked about the negative effects of the beta receptor and the stimulation that we're giving it with those drugs. So what if we could purely attack the alpha receptor? Exactly. So we use this to make a pure alpha receptor agonist. So if phenylephrine is pure alpha, then it's going to be an isolated vasoconstrictor with minimal beta agonism. So we're not going to get that extra squeeze, that extra chronotropy. Now, this is good in one way. It means this med's not arrhythmogenic. If this is a patient with AFib with RVR, giving them a dose of phenylephrine is not going to boost up their heart rate like a dose of norepinephrine or an epi drip would. So it helps from that standpoint. So when I learned about phenylephrine, there was kind of a traditional indication that I was reading about it for, and that was spinal shock. Is that right? So it was the traditional teaching, but now maybe not as clear-cut as we thought. So phenylephrine, like we said, works through pure alpha agonism. And it used to be thought that the spinal shock patients, they lost their sympathetic chain because he had the injury above T1, and therefore their heart wasn't pumping any faster and their vessels weren't constricting. We would give something like phenylephrine, and yes, it would increase our peripheral blood pressure, but the problem is that peripheral blood pressure would be sensed by the carotid baroreceptors, which then feed back through the vagus nerve, which is still intact, and now we get bradycardia. So this hypertension and bradycardia, not exactly good for a dying spinal cord secondary to an injury. So maybe phenylephrine might not be the best for spinal shock. What other indications could we use it for, though, Sean? So there's a couple indications that I think phenylephrine is really the right choice of presser here, and, and 
the big one that I think of is a sedation-induced hypotension. And where I encounter this is like with an intubation. Yeah, exactly. So whenever you physically make the mistake, Sean, that's when phenylephrine might be indicated. <laughs> and I'm joking when I say that, but really it might be a good kind of anti-iatrogenic hypotension. So as Sean was saying, these specific ones are going to be sedation-induced hypotension. If this patient gets propofol, even if this patient gets our magical ketamine, which normally doesn't cause changes, any of these meds can cause some hypotension. And in order to reverse that, a short dose of phenylephrine might help with it. In addition, positive pressure-induced hypotension. If this patient got intubated, if they got started on non-invasive ventilation, we're decreasing our venous return. A little bit of phenylephrine will squeeze our IVC a little bit tighter, get more of that preload to the heart, and let it pump a little bit better. The other time that I think about using phenylephrine is in a patient that presents with a tachydysrhythmia or has a history of recurrent tachydysrhythmias that I'm afraid of worsening their hypotension. Exactly. The classic case here is going to be an AFib with RVR patient who comes in with systolics in the 60s, 60s, 70s, something like that. Now, it's kind of poor form to give that patient with those systolics something like a big old beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker because of just the hypotension. But if we can fix the hypotension with some alpha agonism while not making that heart rate any worse, it actually gives us some more breathing room so we can work on controlling that heart and slowing it down a little bit. So now that we've talked about the indications, let's talk about the dosage. So the dosage for phenylephrine is actually going to be a little bit higher than our dosing for norepinephrine and epinephrine. And that's just because it's a synthetic agent that's not as potent. So instead of starting at four to seven, like we talked about with our other agents, here we start anywhere from 30 to 50 micrograms per minute. Now, this is a stupid number. Don't waste time trying to memorize it. Most institutions have protocols, but just know that your phenylephrine doses are going to be a little bit higher. In addition, remember, we can also use phenylephrine as a push doser in our hospital called a neostick. Now, this neostick has a concentration of anywhere from 80 to 100 micrograms per milliliter, and this can be pushed in just one to two cc pushes as needed to try and reverse that transient hypotension that might be associated with sedation. So in summary, phenylephrine, mechanism is going to be pure alpha. Our indications are going to be induced hypotension, iatrogenic hypotension, or hypotension with an arrhythmia. For your dosage, start anywhere from 30 to 50 micrograms per minute, but you can also use it as a push dose in 200 to 300 micrograms as short pushes. Now, this is bad in hearts that have heart failure because it's hard to pump against it, but it's also good in other bad hearts, so hearts that are prone to tachyarrhythmias. It can kind of help improve your blood pressure without worsening the arrhythmia. In addition, its best indication is probably for those procedure or iatrogenic-associated hypotension. So I'm really glad that we went through all three of those drugs because... I feel like if you have a good grip on norepinephrine, epinephrine, and phenylephrine, you really have all the tools in your arsenal that you need to treat most indications in the emergency department in which you're going to need pressors. And that's definitely true. So with those three medications, we can hit kind of all of our big etiologies of hypotension. And those are the three meds that as ED docs, we should probably be most familiar with. At the same time, this podcast isn't out there just to help most ED docs be as good as most ED docs can be. We want to help every ED doc be as good as an ED doc can be. So we'll run through a couple of other vasopressors. But at the end of the day, if you know norepinephrine, if you know epinephrine, and you know phenylephrine, you're pretty well armed, just like you said, Sean. So let's run through a couple more. Got anything about dopamine? Yeah. So dopamine acts on both of the receptors that we've kind of talked about a lot already, the beta and the alpha receptors, but it also acts on a dopa receptor. The dopa receptor is primarily located in the renal vasculature, and its primary function is to cause vasodilation there. So dopamine is a drug that works on both of the receptors that we've already talked about, the alpha and the beta receptor. But it also acts on something called the dopa receptor, aptly named, of course, primarily located in the renal vasculature. The thought was that by causing vasodilation there, that not only could you improve your blood pressure everywhere else with vasoconstriction, that you could 
protect the kidneys by vasodilating that vasculature. Yeah. So most of our dopamine research was actually done back in the 1960s, and it seemed to be a drug that did a lot of good things, worked on the beta, worked on the alpha, and also had this dopa effect that, hey, maybe this helps out our kidneys too. But most of our new studies now are showing that it's not really that much better than norepinephrine and might actually have increased mortality compared to norepinephrine, which is what the SOAP2 study found. So with that in mind, if you've got norepinephrine, it should probably still be your first-line agent. Some little small indications that we can still find a good role for dopamine might be a patient with bradycardia or a patient with shock. Now, notice I kind of split those two up because I think if a patient's bradycardic and in shock, you should probably be leaning more towards your norepinephrine or even your epinephrine. But if the patient has isolated bradycardia, a little bit of dopamine might help from your beta side. As well as if the patient just has isolated shock due to sepsis or whatever it is and dopamine's what you've got, you can use it too. Just know it's not going to be as good as our norepinephrine. I think the other reason to be familiar with dopamine, our particular EMS policies here, that's what they have on the trucks. That's what the patients will come in with if they get started on a vasopressor in the field. So just being familiar with how that drug is working and how to dose it, I think is really important. Now, going off of those dosages, since dopamine has three different receptors that it binds to, it kind of has three different mechanisms at three different doses. And you'll see this in the show notes we've got attached, but basically low dose might target your dopamine receptors a little bit better and cause that vasodilation in the renal vasculature. Mid doses might give you more of that beta agonism, so your 5 to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute, whereas your high doses saturate those first two sets of receptors and now start to bind more to the alpha, giving you a little bit of vasopressor action. So at the end of the day, dopamine's not really going to be as good of a presser as norepinephrine. Most of the studies have shown norepinephrine is superior or has less adverse effects, but it could be good in special situations like isolated bradycardia without hypotension. The next one that I want to talk about is one of my favorites, vasopressin. And I like this because you can add just a scotia of vasopressin. And that's a great way to look at it because really what you're doing is you are trying to add another ingredient to your milieu because vasopressin, like we said, is not a catecholamine. So we're acting on a completely different set of receptors here, specifically the vasopressin receptors or the V1 receptors. Now, these receptors are located on vascular smooth muscle and they cause vasoconstriction. It's simple. Vasopressin binds the V1 receptors and causes vasoconstriction. It also might have some renal protective effects, but we won't go too much into it. Now, since it does bind just your vasopressor receptors, it's not going to get you that adrenergic activity. So this isn't going to lead for more arrhythmias, and it's also not going to compete with your catecholamines that you're already saturating the patient with. So what kind of patients should I be reaching for vasopressin in? So vasopressin is going to be, once again, good for our shock patients, but we almost look at it as hyperdynamic shock patients. Since we're just going to be squeezing down the vessels and not as much helping out the heart, we want to find these for patients whose heart's already working as hard as it can, and we're just trying to give it that little bit of extra squeeze. So right now, we kind of think of it as being indicated in your catecholamine refractory shocks. We also notice that when we give it, it helps decrease the norepinephrine requirement and has a slight decrease in need for dialysis, but at the end of the day, it doesn't actually show a mortality benefit despite these changes. Now, the thought process here is that most of our septic patients or other patients with distributive shock actually have low circulating levels of vasopressin. So if we start a little bit of vasopressin, we're replacing their endogenous levels and just helping to squeeze the vessels from a different side. Are there any patients that I shouldn't be using vasopressin in? Yeah, so vasopressin, while it is great for those patients who have the indications we talked about above, there are some that it might not be as good at, particularly patients with known either bowel or sometimes digit ischemia. Since this is an isolated vasoconstrictor, if they already have bad mesenteric ischemia, we're just going to be clamping down on those vessels even more, making it worse. So if your patient starts to get 
black fingers or they're starting to get signs of bowel injury, I wouldn't reach for the vasopressin. As I alluded to earlier, the reason I like vasopressin is that you can turn it on and leave it and forget about it. So what are you going to turn it on at? Uh, I start at 0.03 and just leave it there. No titration necessary. Exactly. So you can just start this at 0.03 units per minute. Now, the dosages, when you look at a couple different trials, have had some small variations. Maybe it's 0.03, maybe 0.04. But at the end of the day, we've seen that those low dosages, if started and continued there, will help the patients who need it and won't hurt the patients who don't. So let's say I've got a hypotensive patient. I've already started them on norepinephrine. At what point should I be reaching for vasopressin? Oh, that's a great question, and the jury's still out on that. So we don't have great evidence for when is the right time to add it. So basically, it becomes when you think you should. If you think you're starting to exhaust your adrenergic response, maybe you go ahead and add it. Some people say that's when their norepi gets higher than 15. Some say when it gets higher than 30. At either time, you just basically make the decision, hey, we're going to add vasopressin and see what happens. So we've now talked about a total of five vasopressors, and while there are a couple more out there, those were really the big ones we wanted to focus on. So there's other evidence, some people like using dobutamine for its beta agonism. Milrinone also has a different action on its own, working as a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, and that can make you maybe help out your heart failure patients. Or methylene blue for those just refractory shock that you're just throwing in the kitchen sink at. Those are stories for another day. We'll also hold for another day any further talking about angiotensin II just because the research is showing that it might help with blood pressure, but it doesn't really look at kind of how it affects mortality or things like that. So with that in mind, now that we've talked about these different vasopressors, let's just run through a couple of quick cases and see how we can use them to help ourselves. So, Sean, we got a patient coming in for you. It's going to be a 62-year-old female coming from home with altered mental status. You hear she's got a history of recurrent UTIs, and per the patient's husband who's accompanying her in the room, she's felt real hot today. What are you thinking? I'm assuming through a careful history and physical exam, I come to the diagnosis of urosepsis. Am I right? What a man. I mean, your diagnostic skills have no limits. They have no limits. So here, let me give you some vital signs. So that patient comes in currently with a heart rate in the 110s. She's mentating and breathing well, but first blood pressure, 68 over 41 with a MAP of 50. What are you doing for that patient? Uh, first, I'm going to try to wipe the sweat off of my forehead. That makes me a little bit nervous, uh, but I'm going to start with some fluid resuscitation. This lady is probably going to get 40 cc's per kilo, the whole bolus, unless she has a reason not to. Yeah, exactly. So this is a patient that we aggressively fluid resuscitate, thinking that this might be sepsis-induced hypotension. So we resuscitate her with fluids, we give her a big old bolus, and now her blood pressure is 91 over 48 with a MAP of 62, and her heart rate's about the same, maybe a little bit slower, let's say 105. You happy with those numbers, Sean? I am not happy with those numbers. As we talked about, we want a map greater than 65, and we're not there yet. Okay, so you don't have a map greater than 65. What are you going to do? As I'm dialing the ICU, I'm going to call for some norepinephrine. Okay, so this patient currently only has peripheral lines. Though. You feel okay starting that norepinephrine? Yeah, I think that's okay. You know, we, we give this patient some time to get some a- antibiotics on board. Maybe they'll get a little bit better. It's okay to start peripherally. This patient may go on to need better access or even a central line, but for right now, this patient needs better blood pressure. I completely agree. So we have a patient that even though they improved with fluids, they're still below our number of 65, and that's what our data says. Our data says getting above 65 is going to help out these patients. So we start some peripheral norepinephrine while we're doing the antibiotics and things like that. And an important thing to think about, a lot of times these patients get sicker. Those antibiotics get on board. You start breaking down that bacteria, releasing more endotoxin patient actually becomes more hypotensive, and we need more norepinephrine. Another reason to go ahead and get it on board early so that we can up-titrate it as we need. 
So you've got that patient, you gave them the fluids, you gave them the norepinephrine, the antibiotics, everything else, and that patient's up to the ICU now with a beautiful MAP greater than 65. All right, so you've resuscitated that patient. They're on their way up to the ICU when EMS comes in with one more patient for you, Sean. This is a 58-year-old guy who actually had a cardiac arrest out in the field, a VFEB arrest. That patient got three epinephrines, two shocks, and a king airway in a pear tree before getting ROSC. So now that we've got ROSC, our initial set of vitals, got a heart rate of 110, and our blood pressure, let's say it's the exact same, 68 over 41. What are you doing for this guy? Yeah, I'm seeing these numbers in my nightmares now. Um, this is a patient that I'm probably not going to aggressively fluid resuscitate as I did the first patient. I'm a little bit worried about how that heart is going to work. I might reach for my vasopressors first. Okay. And a vasopressor of choice here? Uh, norepinephrine as always. Norepinephrine as always. So we go ahead and start this patient on norepinephrine. Let's say we start the patient on norepinephrine and just like before, our blood pressure comes up a little bit. Now we're, let's say, 90s over 50s, but our MAP is still less than that magical 65. What are you doing next? Knowing why this patient came in, I, I know that I'm going to be using an echo to help me resuscitate this patient. I think that's my next step here. Okay, so you throw that probe on the heart, and let's say we see a heart that's squeezing pretty well. What's your next step? Probably go up on my norepinephrine. Exactly. If we've got a heart that's working well with the current norepinephrine, let's just keep doing more norepi to help improve our perfusion. Let's say on the other side, the heart doesn't look like it's squeezing really well. It's pretty dilated, just doesn't have much punch to it. Seems like I need a little beta agonism in my life, so I'm reaching for the epinephrine. Exactly. And while this might not be evidence-proven, there is some kind of logical pattern to adding epinephrine for these patients. Maybe we start them at a basal rate to five mics per minute of epinephrine just to help give that heart a little bit more squeeze, and we'd go up on the norepinephrine to help the pressure from there. The beautiful thing is we can keep reevaluating these patients. After we start that epi, we take another look at the heart. If it's squeezing well now, let's just keep going up on the norepi. If it's not squeezing well, maybe give them a little bit more epi while we're continuing to work them up. So Sean, those are two of probably some of the tougher cases that you'll run into, but cases that you always see very, very frequently. At the end of the day, what we want to use this podcast for is to make our listeners not afraid of reaching for vasopressors. At the end of the day, these things help people, and we should maybe be a little bit more aggressive at giving them. So hopefully we went through a good summary of all the different vasopressors we can use, and we're all going to feel a little bit more comfortable next time that sick patient comes in. Yeah, I feel like I've got a better milieu. You get your milieu on, Sean. You get your milieu on. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out.